You're listening to Climate Champions, a podcast from the Architects' Journal. I'm Hattie Hartman, Sustainability Editor at the Architects' Journal. In this episode, we continue our focus on domestic retrofit, speaking to a small practice that started its retrofit journey in 2008, when a client asked for an extreme retrofit. And I'm Hattie's co-host, George Morgan, Director of 1.5 Architecture. That's the important thing of being an architect as well as a retrofitter, is that we can hopefully make things work together in a much more holistic way. And increasingly in modern construction, there's more and more dots and less and less natural joining up of those. So being an architect was partially about being a designer, but also about being a coordinator, being the one who makes sure that all the dots get joined up for a client so a building actually works. So I think it's potentially a natural role for many architects if they find the world of retrofit an exciting one. Today, our guest is Bob Pruitt of Pruitt Bisley Architects, a practice of about 10 people with Bob in London and his partner, Graham Bisley, based in Wells. Bob was a founder member of the Passive House Trust in 2010 and has been pioneering low energy retrofit for almost 15 years, way before the term climate emergency made its way into the headlines. I don't even recall where I first met Bob, but back in the day where I always met the same 15 or 20 architects at every sustainable design event I went to, he was often there. Bob has undertaken deep retrofits of heritage properties, as well as retrofits of standard Victorian terraced houses, often with operational savings around the 80% mark. And in a subject dear to my heart, he actually goes back and monitors his projects to find out how they perform in practice. He was a contributor to the Letty Retrofit Guide published in October of last year, in which two of his projects feature as case studies. Bob, it's really great to have you with us today to discuss the hot topic of domestic retrofit. Between Insulate Britain getting this into the broadsheets and all the good work being done by ACAN through Households Declare, do you sense that we've reached a tipping point where policy changes and financing mechanisms will enable more widespread retrofit? Thanks, Hassi, and thanks for inviting me. In terms of have we reached a tipping point, I'm not sure if we're there, but I think we're nearing it. I certainly sense a much greater, more widespread recognition of the climate emergency. So many councils have declared that. There's more and more policy emerging and more and more guidance as the new British standard for retrofit to support particularly publicly funded projects. The government have finally published their um, energy strategy, which has some promise of funding, perhaps not as much as we'd like. And there appear to be increasing amounts of private finance. On a personal note, we certainly recognise more and more more inquiries for private domestic retrofit, partly driven by the price hikes. I think retrofit is finally entering mainstream. 
So could you tell us how you got started on your retrofit journey? I believe you had a very ambitious client who wanted to undertake a deep retrofit in Hackney. Also, you were supported by some grant funding from the Energy Saving Trust. It's rare that you can look back at a moment in your life and say there was a real turning point. Often things are more cumulative. But in this case, in 2008, I was approached by a private client looking to do an extreme retrofit. But he, he mentioned that in his first opening summary. And that's what got me hooked. And then that led towards a realisation that that's really where all the carbon is. It's in the existing building stock. It led on to sort of understanding what fabric first might really mean. And we did lots of research during that project. We taught ourselves to model using SAP and PHP. And we had an amazing client who every time we offered him different solutions, he'd always sort of go for the one which we thought was the best, actually. So it was a very positive feedback. And then we continued to monitor that project for 12 years. That project really was pivotal for us and changed our view on how we do things and gave me something which was slightly bigger than architecture to think about. But at the same time, trying to do retrofit in a manner which is about beauty and about making buildings which people love. When people fall in love with buildings, they, they're naturally more sustainable because there's, a, there's an emotional contact. And it was interesting, you know, up until that point, we're heading on this trajectory to do sort of multi-residential new builds, a bit like the practices we'd previously worked for. But then, of course, the 2008 crash wiped all those projects out and retrofit started to become a, a subject. So talk us through the process of doing a residential retrofit. How do you decide how deep to go and how do you set priorities? So we always start doing as quick and as wide an exercise, sort of feasibility exercise as possible. And that involves understanding both the client and what their brief is, but also understanding the building at the building physics level in a way. Yesterday I was crawling around in, in a loft again. I spend quite a lot of my time looking at people's floorboards and looking in lofts, trying to understand how buildings are really put together, where their defects are and doing computer modeling of buildings to look at their heating load, comparing that with energy bills, to try and build up quite a clear picture of how the building and how the client works before we're making proposals. But that feasibility study normally does provide proposals, often quite wide. So, you know, options as varied as possible. And we also include cost plans very early on so that clients can start to gauge where the money's going and how they really want to spend it. And sometimes that exercise really changes their parameters and their expectation and their priorities. And getting that very clear understanding of the existing building, you know, increasingly we invest more and more time in that. We're starting to fit monitoring sensors into buildings in that phase two now to give us richer information. And usually that process involves looking at baseline data and then looking at different energy models and seeing where you might get to. We'll use benchmarks such as the ACB retrofit approach, the NFIT standard at 20, 25 kilowatt hours per square meter annum, and also the LETI one, which actually corresponds quite closely to the ACB, pleasingly, I think. There's, a, there's another benchmark which we set. So the government's social housing decarbonisation fund aims at doing better than 100 kilowatt hours per square metre per annum. 
which we think is a bit weak. So we, we use those brackets as a way of sort of judging the different outcomes and giving clients a bit of perspective. Often end up doing quite a good fabric, probably quite a good M&E system too. We rarely push all the way to a passive house. Some buildings physically can't take it. It's a bit strong for quite a lot of historic stock. And getting the air tightness levels that NFIT demands is quite expensive. So we often stop a little bit short. And we quite like that Letty ACB zone. We think that's often a good place to go for. And we generally think you should probably aim a bit higher than the Social Housing Decarbonisation Fund. How do you tease out, in terms of client motivation, the trade-offs between the kind of more showy things like a, a new kitchen and the more performance-related things of a whole house retrofit with a limited budget. There can be a tension between these two things. We'll often split the cost plan into different sections so that it's very clear where the money might go and, and how you might arrange pots of money for different things. Depending on the condition of the existing house, there might be a significant sum that you need just to you know, stop the roof leaking or some cracks in the building or some structural defects or, or, or deal with some services issues. So we try and get those on the page very quickly. And that can vary quite a lot. I mean, sometimes it's as much as 30% of a project just sorting out a building which has been neglected for a long, long time. And then the more visual bits might put that under the title of architecture. That might include things like an extension or a replanning of a ground floor. And again, you can put money against that. Normally, the architecture very quickly dominates, actually. And if you're doing those things anyway, the retrofit bit, while it's an additional cost, it becomes more marginal. That exercise allows clients to sort of focus and see things more clearly. And in in some cases, they actually choose to do less, perhaps architectural stuff, or we find a way of addressing their stated needs in a way which is less less invasive or less aggressive and less money intensive and a project we finished last year actually started off with a brief for a couple of small extensions we ended up not changing the building envelope at all but we just looked at each room individually and made the rooms work much harder through design and through adding in some joinery pieces and then that allowed us to still do quite a a robust retrofit alongside because often clients they've got an idea of they want a space with a certain relationship to the garden for example and assume that that would need to be in an extension but you can also yeah reconfigure the the existing house and so get them the kind of spaces that they want but without having to add area to do that absolutely and there was um there was an early project we did probably back in about 2012 where i think they approached us expecting us to deliver a big extension and we designed them in the feasibility study several options for that and told them how much it would cost. And then we did um, some much more kind of minimal options too. And one where we just tweaked the arrangement of some walls in the ground floor plan, added in a tiny extension, it was about four square metres. And, and actually the, the whole plan worked very effectively and it took probably about £100,000 out of the projected costs. For me, that's the important thing of being an architect as well as a retrofitter is that we can hopefully do both of those things at once, make those things work together in a much more holistic way. Well, that's what we hope everyone is skilled enough to do. 
soon. Um, I want to come back to the comment you made on passive housing that some heritage buildings just can't take it. That's really interesting. Can you unpick that a little bit? It depends how, which way you approach the passive house compliance. And for Renefit, you can go with the space heat demand target, which is very hard to sort of do. Or you can work with certified components. Neither approach works especially well with historic buildings because certified components often means quite chunky German triple glazed windows, which are very different to a Georgian sash. And it's very difficult to reconcile those two things. Glazing technology is actually moving in a direction where, in the not so distant future, that might become less of an issue. And if you follow the space seat demand target, a quite large Georgian terrace, mid-terrace building might get quite close. And we, you know, we, we have worked on a grade two listed building where we got it to within and that's whisker of certification. But if it's an end of terrace, or if it's a two up, two down Victorian, so a less favorable form factor, you really have to put in so much insulation to get the space seat demand where you want it to be you're probably pushing into sort of moisture risky territory for walls and you're probably losing quite a lot of floor area. It just feels a bit too much of a push. We're keen to sort of be rather more risk averse with those sorts of buildings and try and just try and end up in a good position without necessarily pushing all the way. That's a perfect segue into my next question. Even for example, in a small terraced house, how do you fit internal insulation while retaining period details such as cornices and skirting boards etc even if there are quite a lot of existing features skirting boards can be removed and replaced carefully cornices if they're plaster are much harder to do but the plaster around them which has often been changed and altered in quite brutal ways that can be removed and replaced and i think increasingly we'd favor replacing that with either something that's sort of actively breathable like wood fibre or like the original plaster. So there are emerging versions of insulating plaster now, which, of course, don't perform especially highly, but can take a wall into a position which is still remarkably different from its current state. So that work requires quite a lot of care and quite a lot of precision from both the designers and the contractors. But we've certainly done it both on listed projects and and also in conservation areas and I think we've managed to do it both in a way which we feel comfortable with and which conservation people find quite acceptable and achieving a certain level of authenticity too it requires quite a lot of detailed thinking about all the junctions not just the easy details but how you take it around corners and so on how do you vet new materials that that come onto the market to stay up to date with rapidly changing products but also feel secure that it's not just greenwash that they really do perform as well as they claim most of the materials we use we'd probably find out about through a few suppliers that we've known about for a long time so i think it's about relationships and about trying to get really good technical understanding there are lots of products out there with various certifications and certificates are not a bad thing necessarily, but sometimes a certificate is, is very specific and it doesn't really tell you much about how, how the material might go on to behave in the future, how it might deal with moisture and so on. So it's about trying to eke out as much information as you can. 
and hopefully being able to see other projects where that material has been used before, learning from other people's experience before your own. And if we do have any sort of reservations, we're, we're open with clients about that, if we think there's any risks. I mean, I think there's always risk in retrofits, and we're always quite open about that with clients. And when we do try things which are perhaps a bit newer, we'll often fit sensors into those things so that we can see what happens to them over time. And we'll be involved also during the install. We're quite hands-on as architects. We'll want to see how the stuff goes in. Is it going in as, as we were told it should do? And are the contractors fitting it? Are they feeling positive about it? Are they, have they got any misgivings? So it's sort of quite a process of nurture, I think. Well, you've, you've touched on uh, the idea of learning from people who've done things before. So your own trailblazing approach to retrofit is really helpful for other architects. It's really great to have examples to show clients and planning officers about what's possible. I understand you now do some consultancy for other designers too. What are you doing in that area? Those opportunities are really exciting. We did some work last year with, a, with our engineers and conservation group called Alan Baxter. They were writing some conservation area guidance and we, we fed into that to provide some proactive retrofit advice for that conservation area, which is the first time it's been done, set up and sort of led by Historic England. And we spent quite a lot of time discussing with them what we thought might be the most useful sort of retrofit tips for people in that area. That's sort of one, one vein, which I really enjoyed because it potentially has a much wider impact than most of our work. But also we've done work with people like Raft, led by Harry Patticus, Thomas at Etude. We've worked with the London Retrofit Action Plan, was a piece of work that his company led, that myself and Raft fed into. You've also been doing a lot of retrofit training, I think. Can you tell us what's out there in terms of retrofit training and what training you're doing? So a long, long time ago, when we did Retrofit for the Future, that led on to some guidance notes, and I ended up writing about project management. I chose to call it Retrofit Coordination because I thought it reflected better what somebody in that role should be doing. That term then stuck, and Peter Rickaby created this thing called the Retrofit Coordinator Course, then with CORE, but subsequently with the Retrofit Academy. And so I fed into that training over a number of years. That started way back in about 2011. If you want to be a, a PAS 2035 Retrofit Coordinator, we'll talk about the PAS perhaps um, as well, that course is, a, is an accredited course now. The AECB, they've also got a course which is um, heavily informed by their carbon light work. They're both very good retrofit courses. And also people like Green Register do smaller, more bite-sized courses. And, and quite a lot of the same people are teaching across the different courses. So I think the courses and the training provided and the, exa- you know, the examinations too, which go with it, seem to be developing a rigour, which is quite nice to see. So what would be your advice to Someone who wants to skill up, how do they vet these different courses? What are they, how do they decide? There's also Passive House course too, by the way, which isn't specific to retrofit, but I think is a good parallel. So check the prospectuses. I think the courses are a bit different, so try and decipher what the differences are. Most of them are totally online, 
some of them are mixed mode. You can do some face-to-face possibly this year and some Zoom tuition as well. And if you're unsure, I suppose you could start off with the smaller ones first and, and get a sense of, is that useful? Do I, do I like the sound of it? People in our office are broadly just self-taught, of course, because very little of this existed. But there was lots of information and still is quite freely available through the likes of ACB, through their, their forum and their publications and their conferences. And that's certainly where we started. Quite a lot of stuff published by Historic England and Historic Scotland on the heritage side of stuff, which is quite valuable as well. So there's, there's quite a lot of information out there which can just be garnered for free if you're prepared to trawl through it and try and piece it together. As well as the academic learning, there's actually trying to then incorporate it in one's work both by installing measures, but also by trying to set your working practices up, taking into account of vicissitudes of retrofit and how one understands existing buildings and how one might choose to monitor them in certain ways. That learning thing is constant still. You know, every project we look to try and decide what we want to learn on that and what, what, what's new and what's a thing we should focus on and be very careful with. Yeah, and then there's always the, the option for architects to get specialist support from other consultants like the AACB register. You can search for people who've graduated from the Carbon Light Retrofit course and, and get support in that way as well. You touched on past 2035, the fairly new governmental framework for retrofit. Could you talk to us a little bit about that and also how architects might get involved? It is a British standard. And the PAS stands for Publicly Available Standard. And it's the first proper retrofit standard the UK's had that encompasses the whole process from start to finish and places an emphasis on whole house thinking. There was a previous standard which was focused really just on installation, when I think the government thought it was just about procurement and installation. I think one of the things that Each Home Counts Review, which was 2017-ish. That was to sort of look at why was retrofit perhaps not doing so wonderfully. One of the things that uncovered was that the whole process of retrofit was not structured very clearly. At that stage, it was more or less a design-free field. There would be a a SAP assessment or probably an RD SAP assessment and then a simple prescription, and that would get handed over to a contractor, probably to do one measure only. And so, you know, it was wrong on many levels. PAS was then created. It took quite a long time to um, put together. There was a big debate in the industry about what it should be and what it shouldn't be. What it aims to do is to lay down a process, more or less a risk management-driven process, with the aim of trying to up quality, ensure that various roles are carried out such as assessment design coordination and that coordinator role i mentioned earlier on is at the heart of the PAS. and for most projects you need a coordinator in some role from start to finish to provide some oversight and some experience and some guidance so the coordinator role is open to anyone who cares to sort of take the qualification there's also a designer role which many architects could potentially step into 
for certain buildings, certain risk categories, they might need additional conservation qualifications. And going forward, as the PAS continues to develop, I suspect some of those roles may get more clearly defined and more clearly mandated. But for me, being an architect was partially about being a designer, but also about being a coordinator, being the one who makes sure that all the dots get joined up for a client so a building actually works. And increasingly in modern construction, there's more and more dots and less and less natural joining up of those. So for me, that's fundamental to what architects do and have always done. So I think it's potentially a natural role for many architects if they find the world of retrofit an exciting one and a worthwhile one. Bob, since you've undertook your first retrofit, the strategic aims of retrofit have shifted from an early focus mostly on operational carbon emissions to encompass a fabric-first approach now with heat pumps due to the increased electrification of heat and also increased consideration of embodied carbon. How has this changed the way you work? You're right. The, um, the way we think about things has shifted a lot. It's also shifted in, I think, initially, it was everybody was focused on what happens in the winter. And very few people thought about what happens in the summer. Yeah. So there's quite a lot of overheating in some of those projects, I think. But in terms of sort of the balance of where the carbon is, I think we're still very wedded to fabric first. And many buildings in the UK, their operational emissions and operational energy are so out of control. You really have to get a handle on that. We don't see it because we've just been used to cheap energy for so long, but the amount of energy that so many buildings use is just absolutely astonishing. So operational remains terribly important. But as you say, we're very keen to electrify heat to get off fossil fuel as well. And so in combination with fabric, moving towards either direct electric or air source heat pump or ground source or something which isn't fossil, is increasingly seen as an essential. And there may even be projects where the fabric's not so bad and step one for some people might even be the air source heat pump. I say that as generally a a very strong fabric first advocate, but usually it's a combination of the two and getting the operational energy down enough so that heat pump actually will work well and that you can get a really good coefficient of performance out of it. So I've been quite impressed with the first heat pumps that we've been installing in projects that we're getting fairly easily in the 300% efficiency. So one unit in, three units out. And actually, in some instances, closer to four. And that's without necessarily being very expert about it, you know, just really working with subcontractors. So those two things, terribly important. But then, of course, embodied carbon and try to measure that, which is a tricky business. The data is not always as clear as one would like it, especially actually for M&E kits. Um, and we're indebted to people like Clara Bagnall-George, who led the SIBCTM for um, calculating embodied energy. In, yes. um, and and, and that, that's like a, a massive step forward from practically being in a dark room to being able to sort of get a sense of what things are. We're very keen on all projects now to be doing that probably at feasibility stage actually to be doing first estimates of whole life cycle carbon but almost always if it's kind of a pure retrofit the insulation and other measures and i've always 
almost no-brainers to do in terms of embodied carbon because the operational carbon they save is so, so great. The difficult thing that we're challenged with at the moment is the projects which are more invasive or which include you know, bigger extensions or more sort of moving of internal walls and so on, it's the structural stuff usually where a lot of the carbon goes because that involves often disproportionate amounts of concrete into the grounds, quite large bits of steelwork and quite a lot of new bits of building fabric. That quickly starts to dwarf all the, all the retrofit carbon. And quite interesting on some recent projects doing compare and contrast. Even then, if you're doing a good retrofit, you're still in a much, much better place than you might otherwise have been. But we try and use some early guesstimates to influence that prioritisation. Are you really sure you want to spend all this carbon on the extension? Because, you know, if you don't, your building will be saving carbon perhaps two years earlier than it otherwise might be. And given that we're thinking about 10 years ahead at the moment, or more like eight years ahead, really, so we don't really want to be waiting a long time to start saving carbon. So the UK faces a huge challenge of more than 25 million homes that need to be retrofitted, or at least heat pumpified. Italy has initiated a policy of paying 110% of costs, which has jump-started a retrofit revolution there. While Ireland is investing heavily in the training of skilled tradespeople, how do you see the way forward here? As more and more people sort of carry out audits of their stock and they try and figure out how much is this really going to cost, we get closer to understanding what the real cost is at a national level. And my current guesstimate is it's perhaps about 600 billion. I think the London Action retrofit plan suggested to get to net zero, I think that was around 100 billion for London, Greater London. So big chunks of money. But I like to try and think about those in, in the context of other big chunks of money. And so infrastructural projects such as the high-speed rail, those projects are sort of over 100. We're told that the pandemic cost the UK in about two years, actually. It cost about 400 billion. So our 600 billion spread over perhaps 10 or 20 years doesn't seem so big. It's large amounts of money. It needs to be planned in by central governments about half of the housing stock in the uk is privately owned certainly that's true of central london might be slightly less over the um, across the uk but a big proportion and an increasing number of them seem to be quite interested in insulation now that gas and electricity prices are rocketing away and our energy security seems to be looking less less safe than it was a few months ago, it must be possible to help some of those people take the plunge. Many of them have been spending tens of thousands of pounds on extensions for the last 20 years. It would seem not improbable or impossible that they might spend similar amounts adding insulation and other things to their homes, especially if the government incentivised them. So if you show you can improve your EPC band or a similar metric, by a certain amount, then your project might get substantial VAT reduction. We're already doing works to a home. It would make the adding of the insulation bit increasingly like a no-brainer. Thank you so much for your time, Bob. Before we close, can you tell us a little bit about your pipeline? 
what are you working on and what's coming up? So a regular bunch of private domestic retrofits of different flavors and slightly different ambitions. A block of flats close to where I live. I'm helping leaseholders there push forward their little retrofit plan. There's a housing co-op in North London that I've been working with for some time and they will probably start their journey this year. And besides those and other ongoing collaborations, I'm in the in the last phase of my own staged, hopefully benefit retrofit. So for me personally, I've been living in a very warm home for about six years now, and we're finishing the interiors at the moment. So I'm very, very glad I've been able to do it um, for both me and for my family, of course, because for me, retrofits is about healthy homes to bring a family up as well as uh, to low energy home too. Fantastic. That's a great place to close. Thank you very, very much for your thoughtful reflections. We really need to ramp this up. In our next episode, we head up to Manchester to speak to Joe Sharples and Jack Richards of AJ40 Under 40 Practice Additional Studio. If you're enjoying Climate Champions, please rate us and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, It helps people find us so we can build an audience. You can find the show notes for this and previous episodes at architectsjournal.co.uk forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening.